So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and I want to read to you verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, or you could translate as our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man as his own image, as the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. So the next thing then, if we're surveying the Bible's teaching concerning the human race, is, is this theme here that men and women were made, you could say in or you could say as, as the image of God. And we have to work out what that means. Over the course of, of Christian history, you will find, if you, if you study the history of this, you'll find that each age interprets the image of God in terms of its own interests. In the days of Augustine, Christians were very platonic, they read a lot of Plato, Augustine read a lot of Plotinus, who was a follower of Plato, and Augustine said the image of God was the immortality of the soul. That's the kind of thing that Plato would have said. And then you find in the days of, of the liberal movement and the, and the uh, enlightenment of Germany and France and so on, that people took the image of God to be the brotherhood of man and the, and the way in which we are all God's children, as, as they used to say. And we want to abolish war and... Uh, this kind of idealistic view as to, as to what man should be, especially socially. Karl Barth, the famous theologian of Basel, said that the image of God was the relationship between the sexes, the relationship between man and, and woman. The reformers, Luther and Calvin, tended to say the image of God was righteousness and holiness and, and the, the character of God. So each age has tended to interpret the image of God in terms of, of what that particular age is interested in. And it changes from century to century. So when you're thinking about the image of God, the first thing you have to do is, is to try to work out how we're going to find out what it is. You can't just uh, read in current theories or current ideas. How do you actually find out what it means? And I would say there are a number of ways of doing it. One way would be to ask the question, what picture of God do we find in Genesis chapter 1? Because after God has been doing various things, God says, let's make the human race as our image. God's been there, and now there's going to be an image, whatever that means, there's an image of God. That's one way we might look at it. Another way we might come at it is to ask the question, what were images in the ancient world? When Genesis was written, maybe 1300 BC or thereabouts, maybe a bit later, what what was an image? And when, when you said something, that's an image, what did you actually mean by that? And so that's the way in which I think we should come to it. Well, I'm in a hurry, and I can't go through all of the, the details, but um, I would say if you do that, these are the kind of conclusions that you come to. All I'm doing is uh, rushing into conclusions. I haven't got time to work it all out. It would take, take too long. But... Um, in Genesis chapter 1, you have a particular view of God. He's got purpose, he's got a mind, he discusses things, he says, Let, let's make man. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is there. If, if you read it with Christian eyes, 
God is a plurality. God is a plurality. Let us make man. God is a plurality. And from the New Testament, we know that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is making everything good. You're seeing the goodness of God. Everything he does is good. You're seeing the love of God. Why does God create anything in the first place? Because he wants fellowship with the human race. He wants to make things for men and women to live on. You're seeing the love of God. You're seeing the wisdom of God. Creation is famous for its wisdom. So you're seeing something of the character of God and the being of God in the, in the book of Genesis. And then, and then man is to be reflecting God. It's going to, going to be a, a replication of some kind of God. And then it's worth asking the question, what was an image in the ancient world? And the answer is this, that the ancient world had, had all sorts of gods and temples. And each temple of each of the various religions of the ancient world, inside the temple there would be an image, there would be an idol. Sometimes it would be a crocodile, sometimes it would be a Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 and he makes all of his civic officials bow down before his idol, I think it's an idol of him. I think, I think the statue is a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. He wants to be the god of Babylon. So the idol is, is a picture, a representation of, of the god that you worship. That's the way it was in the ancient world. Every temple had the idol or the image inside. A, a physical thing. It wasn't just a, a spiritual idea. It was literally a statue or a picture or something inside which was representing and picturing the god that you were worshipping in that temple. But if that's the way t- images were used in the ancient world, which, which, is, which is the way it is, what it means is this. That the whole world, the whole universe, is a kind of temple. The entire universe is a dwelling place of God. God dwells in our world. In him we live and move and have our being. God fills all space. He fills all time. He's there from eternity and unto eternity. From eternity to everlasting to everlasting. You are God, says the, says the psalm. And he's in every corner of the universe. Where can I go from your presence? If I, if I, if I take the, the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. If I go to the dawn, if I go east or west or up or down, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God fills the universe with his presence. The whole universe is like a kind of temple. And in the temple, God has put something as his image. He's put something there to represent him, to reveal his character, to be a kind of indication of what God it is that we worship in this, in this temple of ours, the whole universe. And the image is the human race. He makes man to be his image. And uh, you keep on hearing me translate as, and, and I... I think that's the right translation. The, the word in, in Hebrew, can also mean as. When you have in Exodus chapter 6, I revealed myself as El Shaddai. But now I want to be known as Yahweh. It's, it's this word here, it can be in, it could be as. When you get in Ezekiel, God appearing in, in the glory, it can, equally, it can equally be God appears as glory. He's shining, radiating out. In means in the formers or in, in being something. So putting it into English, you could translate as, which is often a good translation in the, in the Old Testament. So it's not just that man is in something. It's not what he's in, it's what he is. He's put into our world as, as the reflection and the radiation, the shining out of, of what God is. He's there as the agent's of God in our world. He's God's image, God's representative figure here in this world. 
if you try to work it out, as I say, I'm being a bit dogmatic without arguing everything else in the way that I would like, but, but that's for reasons of time. If you argue it out, I would say it's three things. Being and character and function. Man has got a lot in his being, which is similar to God. He has mind, he has sensitivity to what's right and what's wrong, which he ought to. He has planning and purpose. He can plan about tomorrow. No cat. You have some cats and dogs at home. No cats ever say, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow. No cat ever does that. It's only human beings who can do that. You've never seen your cat praying. You've never seen your cat or your dog repenting. There are certain things in, in men and women which are beyond anything in any kind of animal. The very being of God with, with mind and purpose and love and, and fellowship, the Father and the Son are in fellowship together. These, these things which are part of God's being, they're in us as well. Mind and purpose and planning and ability to think, the ability to reflect and ask what, where we're going and what the future is. All these kind of things that God is doing is God creating, designing, purposing, planning, bringing the human race into being. All those sort of things are in us as well. We reflect the being of God. And then I would say the image of God, this thing that we are here as, is also God's character. And in the book of Genesis, God is good and he's full of love, he's full of wisdom. And you remember how the New Testament picks up this point when, and this is what the reformers said, Luther and Calvin believed that uh, the image was God's righteousness and I think they're basically right. When the New Testament is telling us to live a godly life, it will say, put on, put on the image of God. Go, go back to the image of God. Don't, don't be the way you used to be. Don't, don't go back to the flesh, but, but be renewed in the spirit and put on the new self created, created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. The image is, is righteousness and holiness. It's like, like God in his character. So the image of God is being like God in his being. He made us to be very, to be resembling him in some way. The image of God is to be like his character. We're meant to be good, loving, merciful, kindly, wise. And when we get the image back, when we're restored and we put on the new, the new man, it's created after the image of God in righteousness and holiness. And you find the same thing in in Colossians, Colossians will say, we go back to the knowledge of God. This is part of the, of the image of the Lord, says, says Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Put on the new person, which is being renewed in the knowledge of God after the image of its creator. The image is knowing God and being like God in character, in wisdom, in righteousness, in holiness, in purity. It's partly our character, the character that was typical of man as he was originally made. And so I would say the image is, is God's being. The image is similarity to God's character. And I would say the image is similarity to God's function. Because in Genesis chapter 1, God is clearly the king of everything. He's the king of the universe. He's the one who says, let there be, and there is. He's the lord over everything. He's the one who decides what the world's going to be. And if you study Genesis you'll see there's a kind of logic in it. God makes the three realms. He makes the, the stars and the, he makes the sky and what's up there. 
He makes the earth, he makes the sea, he makes three different realms, up, around and down. Up is the sky, around is the earth, down is the sea. And then he puts things in the three realms. In realm number one, he puts the sun and the moon and the stars. Around the earth, he puts the human race. Down in the seas, he puts the great fish of the sea. Read Genesis, and you'll see the realms are made first, and then things are put in it second. And Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says it was without form and it was void. It had no shape and it was empty. So days 1 to 3 give it shape and days 4 to 6 give it content. He shapes it, he gives it form and he puts things in it, which is the very thing that was missing in Genesis 1 2. It was without form and void. Now God corrects that, puts structure into our world and content and he makes the human race. And he says, I'm putting the human race there as my image in my temple to be the representative of me radiating and shining out with the divine nature. That's the image of God. Think about its implications. It has many implications. It's the reason why we should not make an image of God. Remember, the Ten Commandments says that we, we should not make any kind of image of God. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is that we only have one God. The second commandment is you should not make for, your, for yourself a carved image or any kind of likeness. We shouldn't try to make a picture or a statue of God. I don't think we should make a picture of Jesus either. You go into these Sunday schools and you find all these pictures of Jesus on the wall. He looks a bit American, a bit too hippie with long hair and so on and people think that's Jesus. I was in India once uh, preaching with a team of, a team of people and there was one guy on the team, nice guy, American guy, quite handsome and good looking, long, long hair. And as we were going around this, um, India with this team, a little Indian boy came up to this American and he said to him, are you Jesus? <laughs> He looked just like Jesus in the Sunday school pictures. I said, boy, I thought we were going around with Jesus. <laughs> I don't know that we should picture Jesus. If we do, we give him a certain ethnic identity. We give him a certain skin colour. He's a black Jesus or a white Jesus or somewhere in the middle Jesus. You're giving Jesus a kind of ethnic identity. I don't think we should even try to picture Jesus. Why does the New Testament never describe Jesus? We don't know what he looks like. Why does the New Testament not do that. Well, because if we had a description of Jesus, some people would be like him more than others. If he was white, we'd say Jesus is a European. If he were black, we'd say Jesus is just an African, it's not the African religion. We would, only one culture would identify with him. The fact that there's no description of Jesus at all, except that he wasn't good looking. Isaiah 53, he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, the Pharisees replied, but you're not even 50. 50, he wasn't even 40. He looked a bit older than he was. And Isaiah said he had no form nor comeliness that we should design. But nothing very handsome about Jesus, as far as we know. And the reason why Jesus has had to kiss Jesus is because the soldiers wouldn't have known how to arrest otherwise. He looked like everybody else. So Judas said, he's the one that they kissed. Don't, don't arrest the wrong one, the one that they kissed. He's the one you should arrest. Jesus looked like everybody else. The soldiers would not be able to pick him out of a crowd if Judas had not marked out the one they should arrest. 
So you mustn't have pictures on the wall of some handsome-looking guy who looks as though he's just flown in from New York. Uh, I don't know, we should make pictures of Jesus. And we certainly shouldn't make pictures of God the Father. And the reason why we should not make an image of God is because we're not to make an image of God, we are to be the image of God. If you want to know what God is like, we'll live like him, and so that people see God in you. And you are, as it were, representing God. And people people say, oh, that person, he's a bit like Jesus, and he loves me the way Jesus loves me. And we remind people, that's it in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how... How Jesus said, love your enemies so that you might be children of your Father. Let your good works so shine before men that they see your good works, but they glorify your Father. They're seeing something of God in you. The forgiveness and the graciousness and the tenderness and the wisdom. We're to be the image of God. That's why to make an image of God is forbidden and banned in the Ten Commandments. And then we can think of Jesus in this way because the Bible says that Jesus is supremely the image of God. And it's true both of his deity and of his humanity. Both aspects of Jesus' person, his divine nature, his human nature, the two natures in the one person, they're both in the image of God. Jesus is divine. He is the exact replica of the Father. He shares the divine nature. No no one is more the image of God than Jesus. Remember Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the express image. Hebrews chapter 1 says that the angels worship him when he brings the firstborn into the world. He says that all of God's angels worship him. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact my translation here says imprint. The exact imprint, the exact representation. You go into a post office and somebody has somebody stamps your letter and he stamps the letter. What's on the letter and what's on the stamp? They're both the same. The exact image or representation is there as your letter is stamped by the postman. And Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the divine nature. He's exactly what God the Father is. He's as much God as the Father is God. But not only is that true in Jesus' divine nature, it's also true in Jesus' human nature. If you want to know what God is like, you say, if only God were not invisible. I've always been interested, myself, in novels about people who are invisible. Do you read books like H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man, all these other things. In the 1950s in Britain, there was a TV program about the Invisible Man. If you go onto Google and Google it, you can watch it. You can, you can still watch the Invisible Man from the 1950s on, on the internet. I've always been interested in books about somebody who's invisible. And uh, they always have a problem. There's one particular book I read. I read it from Craig Borter in Peter Maritzburg, as some of you know. Stole a book from his bookshop for a few hours and uh, here's this guy who has a scientific experiment and some place blows up and at the end of it he finds himself invisible but you know an invisible person if you ever, don't, don't ever want to become invisible it's a bit difficult to do your shopping uh, you don't have any friends and if you do have any friends they don't know what you look like it's a bit difficult to relate to anybody if you're invisible you read stories about invisible people fictional stories about invisible people I read one of them, and the poor guy was lonely. He was some young man, 
You wanted a girlfriend or a wife. How, how, do you, how do you find a wife if you're invisible? And he goes to some pub, according to the novel, he goes to some pub and uh, he, he overhears a conversation and so, some lady is talking about being invisible. How does an invisible man ever communicate himself? And she says, well, I suppose he comes and taps you on the shoulder. So at that point, he taps you on the shoulder. I suppose he squeezes your arm. At that point, he squeezes your arm. Finally, this invisible man persuade, persuades the lady that he exists. And uh, I won't say that they did happily ever after because they didn't. But you see, if you ever become an invisible man, how do you relate to everything? How, how do you ever have any friends? How do you do your shopping? How, how do you uh, get married? Or how, how do you sort of survive if you're invisible? I say all of that in order to say... God has the same problem. How does God relate to anybody? He's invisible. How can you relate to someone who's invisible? You say, well, you know, what's God like? You know, if God was, was, was here as one of us, well, what would he be like? Would he be nice? Would we like to, we'd like to have him as our boss or our friend at work? Or, or How would we relate to this invisible God? And the Bible says that that problem is answered in Jesus. That God became visible in Jesus. And Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to see the invisible God? Well, the express image is Jesus. The exact character of God is in Jesus. And if you will look at him, you're seeing all that God is. Everything that you see in Jesus is just what God is like. If you ever have a kind of picture that God the Father is one thing and God the Son is something else, if you think of God as being a bit tough and Jesus as being nice, you've not got the right, you've not got the right picture. Because Jesus is the image of the Father. So, so don't, ever, don't ever contrast the Father and the Son because Jesus is the exact representation in human form, in the flesh, as to what God is. Sometimes Bible-believing Christians, they, they get a bit confused. Sometimes Bible-believing Christians almost talk as though Jesus saves us from the Father. The Father's angry for us and Jesus dies for us so the Father's not angry anymore. You've got Jesus saving us from the Father. Well, that's not right for a start. Because the Father sent Jesus. The God, God the Father, so loved the world that he sent his son. Don't, don't act as though God is angry, but Jesus saves us from God's anger. That's not quite the right way to put it. The Father sent Jesus. God commends his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the Father in his love who sends Jesus. Don't ever contrast the Father and the Son. It's the Father who has got as much love for us as the Son has. And the Father is exactly what Jesus is. He's, he's, he's God in the flesh. You're seeing the image. The one who is here as the representation of God, the image of God, is Jesus more than anybody. What, what's to happen to us is we are to become like Jesus. We are predestined before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans chapter 8. And it's worth pursuing that thought. When, when you go home, pursue that thought. Just look at Jesus and say, this is what God is like. I like just looking at Jesus. I like, the way, I like seeing the way in which he treated people. I love the story of the woman caught in adultery. Here's this woman in her sin and wickedness and she's been caught committing adultery. 
I'd like to know how they caught her. What did they do? Peeping through the curtains or something? How did they sort of catch her anyway? And, uh, and where's the man? Why didn't they catch him as well? That story has a few questions to it. And they dragged her before Jesus and they said, well, we should stone her like the Mosaic law says. And Jesus doesn't say anything. doesn't say a word. He just draws upon the sand with his fingers. And then he says, okay, you want to you stone the stoner? You, you, let, let whoever's without sin cast the first stone. That's in the law as well. And they can't do that. And finally he looks up and says, oh, so you're still here? No one, no one stoned you yet? No, no one's condemned me. Neither do I condemn you. You can go. Oh, by the way, sin no more. You see, in that order, it's not sin no more and then I won't condemn you. It's, in, it's the other way around. I don't condemn you, so don't sin anymore. I like the way Jesus handles that woman. He's so sweet to her. Doesn't say anything nasty to her. Jesus and the woman at the well. There she is, a Samaritan. I mean, do you know about Samaritans? There's this Samaritan woman. Jesus says, you know, I'm thirsty. Can, can, I, share your, can I share your cup of tea? And she says, you know, I'm a Samaritan woman. How, how can you say anything like that? I'm a Samaritan woman. Jew, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. And you want to you share my cup with me? You want to drink out of the same vessel as me? Jesus says, yeah, actually. Actually, whoever gets thirsty with this water, they'll get thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give them, they'll never get thirsty again. And he keeps on chatting and talking to her. Finally, she says, she says, please give me this water. At that point, for the first time, he mentions her sin. He hasn't mentioned her sin at all. Now he says, oh, go get your husband. Uh, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know, I know. You've had five. I know all about it, I know all about you. And even the one you've got now, he's not your husband. But I, I can give you living water anyway. And she goes out and she gets saved. And she goes into the town and she says, come, come and see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Actually, he only told me about one thing. But come and see a man who knows every single thing about me. That's Jesus. He's so nice. He's so sweet. He's never tough on sinners. He never says a harsh word to a woman. Only people he's ever tough, tough on are these Pharisees, these people blocking other people from being saved. He's tough on them, he calls them whitewashed sepulchres, dead, like dead men's tombs, nice on the outside and filthy on the inside. He has tough things to say against them. Everybody else is so gentle, so kindly, so sweet, to, even to terrible people. Matthew, the tax collector, he's so corrupt and wicked, he bought the job anyway, he had to pay money to get the job in the first place. And then he swindles everybody and he's on the side of Rome, he's, he's against the faith of Israel. And Jesus just walks by and says, hey, Matthew, come, I want you to be my disciple. Leave all that, just come and follow me, I'll train you. Matthew is totally stunned, gets up and follows Jesus. This is, this, is, this is God, God is like this. He'll step into your life when you're so corrupt. He'll step into your life when you've had five men in your lives. He'll step into your life when you're some Samaritan, you descend from some Assyrian somewhere and you've got some semi-pagan semi religion and you worship God in this, this mountain where there's some false, false temple there. No matter where you are, where you're coming from, you'll find Jesus is so nice to you. He's so sweet, he's so gentle. That's God. God is like that. 
If you've got a picture of God that's different from what you see in Jesus, you've not got the right picture of God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Man, man is to be the image of God and the one who does it perfectly is Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He is the image and you're seeing the very character and being of God in the person of Jesus. The image of God is the way to think about Jesus. The image of God is the reason why you shouldn't try to represent God in any other way except by being like God yourself. And the image of God is what we are meant to be as we grow in the Lord. We are predestined to be conformed, says Hebrews and Romans, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God has had a plan for millennia, God has had a plan for millions and millions of years and he's got this purpose, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In sending Jesus, God was doing things to get the image of God back into us and get us to be here as his image once again. And that's what It is to grow in grace. To grow in grace is to be more like Jesus. To grow in grace is to be more like God. God in his love. God in his mercy. God in his kindness. God in his wisdom. God in his planning and care for people. God who who loves man. What is man? You, You are mindful of him. What is the son of man? Any particular individual in the human race. A son in the human race. What is any one human being that you care for him so much? And you notice, it doesn't say what is a Jewish man, or what is an Israelite, or what is someone who's saved, or what is someone who's elect. It's not saying that God loves just the saved, that's that's true, I'm I'm not denying that. But this is not dealing with God's love for his people, it's dealing with God's love for everybody everywhere. What is any particular man, anywhere in the human race, where God loves that person so much. I think it was Augustine who said, Augustine of Hippo, I believe, who said, God loves every person as though there were only one person to love. God loves every person as if there were only one person to love. And it's not, it's not saved. God commends his love, even to the unsaved. God commends his love. He recommends his love. He said, look, 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 see how much I love you. I sent Jesus. I'm recommending myself to you as your lover. God recommends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think our view of the character of God is not tender enough. It's got too much wrath in it. And, uh, Remember that the wrath of God and the love of God are not parallel. They're not on a level. The Bible says God is love. And the Bible says that God becomes angry. It never says God is anger. It says God becomes angry. God God hates sin. He becomes angry. Love is what God is. Anger is is how God reacts. God's not wrath in and of himself. You, you can't say God is wrath in the way in which you can say God is love. Yeah. And indeed, God's anger is part of his love because he gets angry with everything that's not right. 
It's part of his love. You get angry with your children when they're naughty, do you not? But you're angry with your children when they're naughty. It's part of your love. You don't want them to be that way. And so you'll do something about them. Your anger is part of your love for them, is it not? Same is true of God. Even God's anger is part of his love. God is so full of tenderness and we are to be the image of God. We are to reflect and radiate the very being and character of God and the high point of it is love. The high point of it is love. 1 Corinthians 13, you know the passage well, I'm sure. If I have the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm just a, I'm just a noisy gong. I'm just a banging, clanging noise and nothing more. If I have prophetic powers and if I understand all knowledge and all mysteries and if I have all faith I'm such a great charismatic I can move a mountain no one's ever done it yes have you ever noticed no one's ever moved a mountain yes Queen Victoria you know that Queen Victoria once gave a mountain away in the old days there were two mountains in Kenya and none in Tanzania and Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria's cousin complained. Queen Victoria's cousin, who was ruling German East Africa, said, hey, how come you've got two mountains and we've got, we've got none? And Queen Victoria redrew the map and gave Tanzania Mount Kilimanjaro. It's true, it's true. She couldn't move the mountain, all she could do was redraw the map. No one's ever moved the mountain just yet. And but the Bible's famous for immovable mountains. The one thing that nobody ever can do is move a mountain. And if you really want to show how powerful you are, you can move a mountain. Oh, no one's ever done it yet. If I have all faith that I really can move a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Notice what Paul says. He begins by saying, I'm just noisy. Then he says, I am nothing. And then he says, I gain nothing. You're nothing but a bit of noise. You're empty as a person and you don't gain anything by, by, the, by what you're doing if you don't have love. There's supremacy of love. It's the high point. It's anything that lasts forever. Faith doesn't last forever. One day faith will go. You, you, you won't need faith in heaven. Everything will be there for you. You won't need to believe anything. You'll see it all. There's no faith needed. don't need faith in heaven. There won't be any hope in heaven because everything you're hoping for will be there. It'll be fulfilled. All your hopes will be realised. You won't need hope in heaven. There'll be no faith in heaven. won't be needed. There'll be no hope in heaven. That won't be needed either. Heaven will be a kingdom of love. It will last forever and ever and ever. Everybody will be full of love in heaven. And the image of God, it's being, it's being like Jesus. It's growing in love. It's growing in mercy and kindness. And Paul goes on to, to describe it. Love, love is long-suffering. It puts up with a lot of things. Love is kind. It does a lot of good things for people. It's, it's not got any kind of pride, proud. It's not proud in the way in which it speaks. It doesn't boast. It's not proud in the way in which it presents itself. It's not p- p- puffed up and p- p- presenting itself as a big guy or a great lady. It's not rude, it's not proud in its talk, it's not behaving in its self-presentation, it's not proud in its behaviour. Love, it's the supreme thing. And if I have all these things, if I, if I give away everything I've got, love is not the same as generosity. You can give away every single thing you've got and still not have love. 
Love is not the same as sacrifice. You can sacrifice your body to be burned and still not have love. Look at, look at any suicide terrorist. He sacrificed himself. I don't know he's being very loving. You can sacrifice yourself but not have love. You can be supremely generous but not have love. Paul says this, this, is, this is the one thing without which everything else is useless. You won't get a reward in heaven for anything that's not done in love. Other things in heaven won't get rewarded because we did them for the wrong reasons. Only that which is done in love gains anything, says, says 1 Corinthians 13. This is the image of God. It's, this is what God is like. And Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Forgive those who despitefully use you. Forgive everybody everywhere that you may be like your father. That you may be like your father, says the the famous Sermon on the Mount. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies so that you might be sons of your father. You see, when you see some little boy... And you say, oh, you look just like your dad. You, you, you sort of see the resemblance. The son looks a bit like the father. I remember going back to Nairobi Baptist Church some years ago, where I was once pastor. And I went back for an anniversary. And I saw there some of my old friends I hadn't seen for 20 years. And I say, oh, there's my old friend. And I'll go to my, up to my old friend. Suddenly I realize, no, no, it can't be him. He's too young. My old friend must be 20 years older now. And then I would realise, it's not my old friend, it's his son looking just like him 20 years ago. I can remember what his dad looked like, and now he looks just the same as what I can remember 20 years ago. It's his son looking just like him 20 years before. He looks just like his dad. And Jesus says, you live this way so that you might be sons of your father who is in heaven. Be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to reflect and radiate the image of God. We are here as his representation. When people look at us, they're meant to see God. What is said of Jesus, they ought to say of us, that we say of Jesus, he who has seen me has seen the Father. It ought to be a little bit true of us as well. That when they see us, they see the Father. When they see us, they see Jesus. This is the way to think about sanctification. This is the way to think about holiness. Don't think of it as just giving up things, not going to the cinema very often, or, or uh, making sure you don't watch TV too much, or, or not telling lies. Or those things are all right, but those, that's not important. The important thing is being like Jesus, what you're going after, going after similarity to God in forgiveness, in grace, in mercy, in kindness. This is what God is like. We're here as the image of God. This is what spiritual growth is. This is what is to grow. And if we ever get to be like that, it will win the world. Jesus said, by this, will all people know that you are my disciples when you love one another. When you get to be a bit like God, and there's this loving tenderness you'll hear radiating the character of God, everybody gets to know, you're, you, you, must, you must come from Jesus, you're Jesus' disciples, they, they get to know it. Here we are, we're in a bad state in Europe. Muslim invasion, some countries in Europe will be Muslim countries within about 15 years. Marseille is already one third under Sharia law. 
and European civilization looks as though it's about to collapse. Western economy is collapsing, China's overtaking us economically, India's overtaking us, the West is slowly collapsing. Is there anything that could possibly change direction, anything that could, as it will, win the world? Is there any way in which Europe could become Christian Europe once again? Only one thing, only one thing will save Europe. Not the politicians, they'll never save Europe. Not the economists, they'll never save Europe. Not the philosophers. The only people that could possibly save the direction of our countries are Christian people and the gospel. The only thing that would win the world is when they look at us and they see Jesus. It's the way in which the Roman world was, was won. When Christians came into being in the first century after Jesus, the Christian gospel spread like wildfire. I mean, thousands were saved every day. Three thousand were saved in the day of Pentecost. And it carried on like that. It spread everywhere. Tertullian, in, writing in the, in the end of the second century, he could say, we've taken over everything. We've taken over your schools, your army, we're, we're, in, your, we're in your parliament, we're everywhere. We've taken over your whole country. He says to a Roman district governor, we've taken over everything. If all, if all the Christians leave, you'll have nobody left except your enemies. The only thing we've left you is your temple and your God. You can have that. We've taken over all the rest. Imagine saying that to a district governor. You can't say if it's not true. How do these Christians spread so fast? The answer is, although they thought the Christians were the weirdest people on planet Earth, they had to admire their love. And the saying went around everywhere, see how these Christians love one another. That saying went around the Roman world. And Tertullian would say, he would say, the only reason why you don't join us is you don't know us. Come and see what we're like and you'll join us. And that's what happened. And the Christian gospel spread everywhere. The only thing that would change direction in Europe is to be like that. To go back to the point where every, Christ, every Christian is so much like Jesus. The image of God is shining, radiating in us. We're going after love. We're going after similarity to Jesus. We're going after a lifestyle where people are reminded of God. That's the thing that will win the world. That's what the human race is meant to be. It's meant to begin with us. We... We are to be the people that the world needs. We are to be the community that the world is looking for. The world's looking for love, not looking for anything else. The world's not looking for great sermons, I'm sorry about that, but it's not. The world's not looking for great music or powerful worship. The world's not looking for those things. The world's not looking for great theology. They couldn't care less about that. But the world is looking for love. Everybody wants to be loved. When the news gets around that there's a people who are rejoicing, they're loving, they're tender, they're full of Jesuses. That place is full of people like Jesus. Oh, they come. They come in their tens and their twenties and their hundreds and their thousands and the whole of the country gets changed. By this shall all people know that you're my disciples. When you, when you and I, when we regain the image of God, get to, go to know God in, in holiness, purity, righteousness, love, wisdom, tenderness. Everybody gets to know about it. And we win the world. The only hope for Europe, I don't have any hope for Europe apart from that. Though I do have some hope of that. I believe that Europe will see revival. But it'll be revival of being like Jesus. No other revival's going to do it. It's got to be a revival of being like Jesus. When we get the image of God back, when we're beginning to reflect and represent God, we will change the world and the world will be one for the Lord Jesus Christ.
Let's stand and let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and these things are just a bit overwhelming. To be like Jesus, to be your representation here in this world, to be the one who reminds everybody everywhere that this holy temple is yours. We're here to talk about you and represent you and be your, your, your picture here in this world. Lord, what a challenge, what a, an amazing calling you put upon us. I pray that we may learn to, th- to think this way, to think of ourselves as your people here in this world, representing you, having people are looking at us and watching us. Help us to think this way and be all that we ought to be. Help us to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord predestined to be after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us to be such a people that we may share your, that we may proclaim your glory, that people may see our good works and glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. Do it, we pray. Begin with me, begin with us here, begin with us and grant us that we may be your people here in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. God bless you.